The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Got a new rig for the microphone. Now I'm hardwired in so I can't run off. And that means that we won't have those little glitches anymore. But when we go into the new spot, we'll try the wireless again, because that may work over there. It may just be something internal to this building. It's probably something to do with the way Baptists are wired. I don't know. Well, before we get started this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, get our focus on the Lord. Make sure we're ready to study the Word, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to come together to study your word. We thank you that you have revealed so much to us and that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And our responsibility is to study your word and to grow by the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we study these things, we pray that you'd help us to understand them, that we would have the humility and the objectivity to honestly face where our own lives and to see where the scripture applies and be willing to take the challenge to apply these things that we may be transformed by God the Holy Spirit and by your word into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. Hebrews 2.10 and we're getting into the center part of this next Section. The last few verses we studied, verses 5 down to 9, really just sort of set the framework, uh, set up the foundation, built the transition from the first uh, chapter and the first major point in this uh, development of Hebrews to the second. Really interesting material that is not uh, normally handled, or even when it is handled, it's not handled very well. And that's... I think often the case because people don't have a a good model of the Christian life. And, you know, we're just so fortunate because in our tradition, we have been influenced by the tremendous teaching of uh, C.I. Schofield and a lot of what he said, although he didn't have a lot of things nailed down uh, totally in his uh, Schofield study Bible, the influence that he had on dispensational thinking was profound, and he had a unique influence on 
developing a dispensational understanding of the Christian life. And there is a view of the Christian life that is uniquely dispensational. A lot of people just don't understand that. And the more I study all these issues, the more I'm aware of the fact that dispensationalism is really a unique development in history. And uh, a lot of people say, well, that sounds awfully arrogant, like nobody had the truth until dispensationalists came along. And that's, uh, no, nobody's saying that. Uh, in the development of doctrine, that's really the, that's the term. What that means is that in the course of the history of the church, the church age, there has been a development of our understanding of doctrine. And we see this easily when we study doctrines such as the Trinity or Christology, and we see examples of how the early church wrestled with explaining the various uh, things that the Bible taught about the Trinity, for example, that all three members were fully God, but the Bible also taught that there was one God. But the Bible never puts that together, and it was left to the church as they studied the scriptures to learn how to properly articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. And then, not long after that, they had to deal with the issue of the humanity and the deity of Christ, in reference, and the conclusion was a doctrine of the hypostatic union, the Nicene Creed, uh, ultimately developing into the Chalcedonian Creed. And so there's this constant development of a systema- systematization of doctrine where we learn how to make things coherent and consistent with other things. And the major planks that are evident in dispensational thought, such as the literal grammatical historical interpretation of, of Scripture, the, and the key word there is the consistent literal grammatical historical interpretation of Scripture, uh, it's been around since the early church. There was this huge parenthesis, though, from about the fourth century due to the influence of an early church father named Origen up to the late 16th century uh, when the dominant view that governed uh, the church on, on hermeneutics or interpretation was allegory. And see, if you have an allegorical method of interpretation, you're never going to come up with a premillennial theology of any kind because uh, amillennialism was the order of the day. Now, there were pockets of people here and there who held to uh, premillennialism. There were pockets of people who held to distinction between Israel and the church. There were, you know, a small group here and a small group there, but they didn't have numbers. They didn't have training centers. There weren't places where they could sit and develop and and their their thinking within a consistent, coherent, systematic theology. And so it wasn't until the end of the 19, uh, end of the 18th century, actually, that you had several things that came together that laid the groundwork for John Nelson Darby, uh, who systematized dispensational thought. And those three elements that you have to have to have dispensa- clean, clear, systematic dispensational thought are, first of all, a literal grammatical, historical view of of interpreting Scripture, that you're not coming in using allegory, you're not looking for hidden meanings, you're not trying to make everything a symbol. So that's the first thing. The second thing you have to have is that you have to have a view of prophecy as futuristic. 
that the events that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, when the disciples said, what are going to be the signs of your coming? And he talks about uh, there will be rumors of wars. Uh, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be famines. So he talk, gives all the different signs there in Matthew 24 are signs of his coming, that that's future. Uh, and Revelation, that Revelation 4 through 22 is all future, unfulfilled. Once you have a future view of prophecy, a consistent, literal interpretation, and then the third plank is a, your view of Israel, that God has a plan for Israel in the future. And that's almost the core idea in dispensationalism. Somebody's going to ask you, what's a dispensationalist? Now, this is really an, an important question today, because dispensationalism, if you don't know this, dispensationalism is sort of the whipping boy in the evangelical community. If anything's going wrong, it's because, oh, it's those nasty dispensationalists. They just get blamed for, for uh, anything and everything. And that's what's wrong with the church today is because these dispensationalists came along. They're focusing everybody's attention on the future. And so the church isn't interacting properly with society today. There's no social agenda in the church. And so there's all of this poverty and all these other social problems. And it's all because dispensationalists are all concerned about the, the by and by and not the here and now. And that's not true, by the way. Uh, that, that is not true. I've been reading off and on the last several months a work done by a professor out at the Master's College named Jim Owens, and he has written a book on the history of fundamentalism from 1935 to around 1950, 1955, and has demonstrated that it was the historic fundamentalists, that's what we would be, the historic fundamentalists and evangelicalism, who were really at the cutting edge. They, they were shouting warnings about Hitler and anti-Semitism and a number of other issues very early before anybody else in the 30s. And yet, because we're Bible believers, we're always out there on the margins. Nobody listens to us. And, and we're constantly being misunderstood and our views are distorted. And that's just part of uh, an angelic conflict. That's part of spiritual warfare. But... It's, it's dispensationalism, get back to my main point, dispensationalism is just being abused by everybody today. And yet, at the popular level, as opposed to the academic level, at the popular level, dispensationalism is as well-known and as popular as it's ever been. And a lot of that is due to a couple of different, very popular works that have been published in the late 20th century. There was the late great planet Earth, which uh, Hal Lindsey wrote, and even though there may be things in there that we might not agree with or that I don't necessarily agree with in terms of, of its um, uh, correct exegesis of this passage or that passage, uh, I remember several years ago um, uh, Dr. Earl Rodmarker, who was a chancellor of uh, Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, made the comment that I'm not real sure uh, I've never really liked late great planet Earth, but obviously God does. And I've never had a congregation. I'm, I'm not polled y'all, but I've never had a congregation where I didn't have at least one member who was led to the Lord just by reading late great planet Earth. And then at the end of the uh, 20th century, we had the Left Behind series. And there's a number of individual 
instances and issues that, you know, we may not agree with the way that LaHaye and Jenkins handled, but overall their theology is solid and they're building it on a uh, premillennial dispensational pre-trib rapture orientation. The eschatology is fairly sound. And this speaks, though, to people at the popular level and across America. And so uh, dispensational teaching is alive and well at the grassroots level even though at the seminary level and the academic level and the so-called respectability level, uh, it is often the whipping boy. There have been several years when um, uh, at the Evangelical Theological Society meetings, which is the professional organization for uh, evangelical scholars to meet and have papers and debate and, different and present uh, academic papers, uh, dispensationalists always seem to be blamed for everything. Now, the reason I'm making these comments is that in the last couple of days, I've had some time to spend with a man some of you know, Dr. Mike Stallard. And Mike is, was a few years behind me. We overlapped at uh, Dallas, and uh, he is a professor of theology up at the Bible Baptist Seminary in Pennsylvania. And he came down this week, and he's been speaking or had been recruiting over at the College of Biblical Studies. And yesterday he gave the faculty a little a talk on the state of dispensationalism today, and which is pretty much reflected in what I just said. But see, if you don't have a good understanding of dispensationalism and what God is doing in the church, and that what's happening in this age is unique and distinct from Israel, then it affects every area of theology. We always have to realize that every part of the Bible relates to every other part of the Bible. And to understand one part of the Bible means that you have to, in some sense, understand every other part of the Bible because the whole of the Bible represents God's consistent and coherent revelation to man. The whole of the Bible represents a consistent and coherent thought system. And so if you change things in one place, it changes things somewhere else. And so it's important to maintain a consistency, but you know, too often people just think that consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. And so they just want to believe this thing over here and that thing over here. And, and we live in an era known as postmodernism when people don't want to think their way to conclusions. They want to feel their way to conclusions. And so this works itself out in the church in that we are producing people in the pew or attracting people in the pew who don't want to learn to think about the Scriptures. They just want to feel about the Scriptures. Uh, They just want to feel their way to God. And that's why you have the popularity of so many of these mega churches that emphasize the praise and worship music. and And that praise and worship music grows out of a philosophy of worship, a theology of worship that is non-biblical in my opinion. And most people don't know that nobody ever goes into the history of all this stuff. It's like, oh, it just popped up out of nowhere and this is the way we are today. No, it has its roots in certain theological soil that is uh, not consistent with sound biblical doctrine. Well, when we come to the subject matter that begins to be addressed in Hebrews 2.10, which is sanctification, we have to understand that there are different views of the spiritual life. Now, we're going to get into some really interesting things here, but we, I have to make sure that we have a foundation. Now, as I look out at the audience tonight, 
most of you have been around good Bible teaching for a while. And so you have a tremendous working knowledge of the Scripture. Most of you are incredibly biblically literate. But we don't live in a biblically literate church environment anymore. And uh, today I had lunch with, uh, with Mike Stollard, and, and uh, we were talking about different things. I said, well, Mike, you've been teaching at the uh, college and especially seminary level for over ten years now. What are, what are the trends that you're seeing? What do you see going on with the students that come into seminary, the, the brand-new first-year seminary students? How have things changed in the last ten years? And he said, well, most of them are just com- biblically illiterate as they can be. It used to be you could at least assume that people understood a dispensational chart. They knew the, the timeline. They knew the basic timeline of Scripture. They knew about the patriarchs and then the exodus and then uh, the period in the wilderness and then the conquest and, and then the uh, united kingdom under David, uh, Saul, David, and Solomon, then the divided kingdom and the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and then eventually the exile uh, with the Babylonian captivity and the uh, return from the exile and then the coming of Christ in the first century. They understood the basic timeline. So they don't understand the basic timeline anymore. You mentioned dispensations. They don't know what you're talking about. And some of you don't know this, but last this semester I'm teaching a class, an Old Testament survey class, at the College of Biblical Studies on Thursday morning. And last week was the first class, and I've got seven students, and I said... As part of the introduction to the Old Testament, I wanted to introduce them to dispensations and to covenants because that's crucial to being able to understand the flow of, uh, of Old Testament history and, and Old Testament theology. And I said, how many here have, know what a dispensation is? No hands. I said, how many here have heard of dispensationalism? No hands. I said, how many of you have ever heard the word dispensation? No hands. I'm thinking, whoa, I've got to really crank this material down to the bottom shelf here. This is, this is giving, uh, getting me a heavy dose of reality. And that's the situation we're in today. And as a pastor, this is something that I have to, I, I give, I don't give a lot of thought. I don't sit around and contemplate my navel over this too much. But it is something of concern. Because we have a congregation that is a very literate congregation, a very knowledgeable congregation. And in terms of your understanding of doctrine, your understanding of certain terms, you can communicate fairly well and you can understand at a certain level. Now, I may be over your head every now and then. Some of you may be thinking, well, it's more than now and then. But, um, you know, that's part of what teaching is all about. And, and in my experience, the teachers, the professors that I always learned the most from were the ones that were teaching about six inches over my head, and I had to stand on my tiptoes in order to be stretched and to learn. And that has really formed a, a foundation to my, my philosophy of ministry as a pastor. The goal of the pastor is to teach the Word. It's not limited to just encouraging or motivating, although that, that comes from the Word. My philosophy of ministry is that we have to teach because we have to learn to think biblically, and you don't get that from what is commonly called preaching. 
today. What's commonly called preaching today is more motivational. Even if it's biblical and it's expositional, it still tends to be more application-driven in the sense that it's designed to encourage and challenge people to apply the Word rather than trying to teach them how to think uh, biblically as opposed to being influenced by their uh, pagan or human viewpoint presuppositions. And this is a case in point when you come to something like this, is that theology really makes a difference in how you interpret the Scripture. But when I say that, I want to put a caveat in here, is that I don't interpret the Scriptures this way because I'm a dispensationalist. I'm a dispensationalist because this is what the Scripture says. You always have to argue from the Scripture to your theology, not the other way around. But once you get a systematized theology, which is what what really started with John Nelson Darby in the early 1800s, and then uh, C.I. Schofield and his Schofield Reference Bible, and C.I. Schofield mentored uh, Lewis Ferry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, and Lewis Ferry Chafer just influenced hundreds of young men in the 30s and the 40s who went out and taught dispensational theology. And it was sad to say that somehow the ball got dropped because by the late 60s to early 70s, mostly in the early 70s, you started having uh, men come out of Dallas and said, you know, the one thing that really didn't, doesn't seem to help me much as a pastor is dispensationalism. And so a drift began in, in the 70s, and then you had controversy started to arise in the 80s in the realm of spiritual life, where people started saying, well, you know, okay, I believe in a pre-trib rapture, and I believe in premillennialism, but how does dispensationalism affect my understanding of the spiritual life? How does dispensationalism affect my view of sanctification? And, there were, and most men didn't even understand that there was a dispensational view of sanctification. I mean, even men who are in doctrinal churches didn't understand that. And in 1983, I believe, a book came out called Five Views of Sanctification. And there's actually about seven or eight different models of the spiritual life, models of uh, theologies of sanctification, if you will. And uh, in this particular book, though, it had a... Uh, chat, these five views, if you're not familiar with these books, uh, this has been a hot stuff in Christian publishing aimed at the seminary Bible college market for the last 20 years is to publish these views, these books called Three Views on Prophecy, Five Views on Marriage and Divorce, Five Views on Sanctification. And so you take theologians who represent different schools of thought, and they write an article defending their view, and then the other four guys respond to it. And if you're a seminary student and you're being trained, this helps you to think because you, you see the differences in the different approaches, how different people exegete different verses, come to different conclusions, and you learn to think analytically and critically about the different views. And in this book, there was a chapter written by Dr. Walverd, President of Dallas Seminary and probably the foremost uh, exponent of Dr. Chafer's writings at the seminary. And he wrote a chapter called The Augustinian Dispensational View of the Spiritual Life. And I remember when that book came out and guys I knew over Dallas were saying, golly, I didn't know there was a dispensational view of the Christian life. 
And Walbert clearly understood that, and Schaefer understood that. And it, it has its roots in our understanding of the distinctions of what Jesus Christ did related to the spiritual life at the first advent and the role of God the Holy Spirit in the church age. Now, what I've done in this, I'm just, I want to set up an introduction so we can, we can start putting some things together in our thinking when we come to understand the spiritual life. And so I'm giving this as kind of a broad, uh, broad-based introduction, and if I can find a overhead pin, well, that may be, here we go, buried in the back. No, this is a ballpoint pen. Anyway, I, I found one. All theological systems can be summarized into one of two camps. Replacement theology and dispensationalism. Now what's replacement theology? Replacement theology refers to the fact that in their theological understanding and interpretation of Scripture, the church replaces Israel in God's plan completely. So that the promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises that were made to David, the promises that were made to Israel, promises related to the physical land, promises related to the Davidic throne, no longer belong to the Jews because they rejected Christ as a Messiah. And so in replacement theology, they lost it, and those promises are now given to the church, and they believe in one people of God. So there's not a distinction in replacement theology between Israel and the church. There's just one people of God, and the church replaces Israel. And so that's what we mean by replacement theology. And this works itself out across the spectrum of theological systems, whether you're talking about Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, let's just think our way through the Reformation, Lutheranism, the Reformed churches, uh, Presbyterianism, uh, Congregationalism, all of those different camps, uh, Baptists, many, well, many Baptists in America became influenced by dispensationalism in the early uh, 20th century. Many of them historically were not. Um, Lutheran, Reformed Baptist, Church of Christ, all of these different groups were all, are all replacement theology. The only theological system that sees a distinction between Israel and the church that God has a distinct plan and a future for Israel, even though right now there's a parenthesis for the church age, Israel will be restored and God will literally fulfill the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in terms of a literal land and and to, to David. In fact, we were talking yesterday, what would be the one question you would ask somebody if you had five seconds and you wanted to find out if they understood the Scriptures correctly Dispensationally, what would be the one question you would ask? One question says it all. Do you think Israel has a right to the land? 
See, in all these systems up here, Israel has no right to the land. That's why these groups tend to be anti, tend to be, they're not necessarily, but they tend to be anti-Semitic or at least they're anti-Zionistic. And that's why Europe is not pro-Israel. Because Israel, Europe does not have a historical foundation and they were never impacted by dispensational theology. See, that's just another example of how theology makes a difference in understanding politics and, and um, foreign policy. It has deeply and profoundly affected the United States and our support, uh, support for Israel. Now, in dispensationalism, you have this distinction between Israel and the church. And that's going to play itself out in terms of our understanding of the Christian life. The interesting thing is, not only do you have a view of replacement theology up here versus dispensationalism down here related to other areas of theology, specifically prophecy and Israel, but it's interesting that this lines up when when you talk about the spiritual life. Because all of these other systems want to base the spiritual life on morality, on just doing good, just go out and do what the Scripture says to do. There's no development, there was no development in these systems on the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the spiritual life of the believer. In fact, when I was a doctoral student, I took a uh, uh, seminar on the Holy Spirit and I had to read, we had to read five or six books on theologies on the Holy Spirit and I read uh, John Owen's book on the Holy Spirit. John Owens was uh, Cromwell's chaplain, and he wrote a volume on the Holy Spirit that's considered by uh, Presbyterians to be the definitive work on the Holy Spirit. And uh, the second definitive work is a work by Abraham Kuyper, who is a Reformed theologian and also the uh, Prime Minister of, of the Netherlands in the late 19th century. And uh, he wrote a work on the Holy Spirit. And you can read through, both of these books are like 600 pages, small, fine print. You can read through all of them. They never talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They never talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit. They never talk about walking by the Holy Spirit. A couple of times they may use that terminology, but they never explain it. It's just a, it's just a use of, of a biblical phrase without any meaning. What happened? was at the end of the 19th century, you had two things happen historically. Number one, you had the rise of the Keswick movement, which was really influenced by uh, holiness theology. And that had two influences. So this, this is where you have to have a little historical perspective to understand you know, where we are and what's going on. Is that at the end of the 19th century here, you have the Keswick movement... That's spelled K-E-S-W-I-C-K, and the holiness movement. But it had two different impacts. One was to impact Pentecostalism. And the other was that verbiage out of the Keswick movement influenced, because these guys were all on the same speaker circuit. I mean, they went to uh, the Niagara conferences, and they went to prophecy conferences, speaking in New York and Northfield, Massachusetts. Uh, People like uh, Moody, Schofield, Chafer, Charles Trumbull, a number of other speakers, all spoke on the same platform, so they heard each other. And so you have Schofield and Chafer 
were influenced by some of the terminology, but they used it differently. And that's something that was important to understand. And Schofield and Chafer understood that the real issue in the church age was the Holy Spirit. Now, the Pentecostals also emphasized the Holy Spirit, but they did it from a mystical standpoint. And there was a difference down here because Schofield and Schaefer didn't handle the Holy Spirit in that kind of subjective, mystical aspect like the Pentecostals did. And this is what sets up for the development of the understanding of the spiritual life in the 20th century in a ways that have never been understood before in history. I mean, you go back and read Jonathan Edwards, or you read Calvin, or you read Luther. They just don't have a well-developed theology of the Holy Spirit, and it gradually develops over the coming over the coming uh, centuries. Now, all of this has its impact because you see the connection between dispensationalism is going to come back, and not only is it going to emphasize the fact that there's a role for the Holy Spirit, but because of its future orientation, it's going to open people's eyes to the fact that what's happening today in terms of our spiritual life is directly related to what's going to happen in the future. But when you're coming at all of this from those other viewpoints... You have a, you've allegorized the throne of David, for example, so that Jesus is no longer going to come back to rule on the throne of David at some time in the future. You've got Jesus on an allegorized, symbolic throne of David at the right hand of God right now. And so this changes how you, how you're going to understand the dynamics of the spiritual life. And one of the key verses for understanding this is the, what we started with last time in Hebrews 2.5, for he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. What are we talking about? We're talking about the, the, the time when Jesus is going to rule as the son of David is in the world to come. So it gives us that future orientation related to the kingdom. It changes the motivation for what's happening in the church age and in our spiritual life. We are looking forward with anticipation to ruling and reigning with Christ. So the writer of Hebrews then comes along and he says, For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, quotes from Psalm 8, which we studied last time, and then concludes by saying that we now we, we, we don't see everything in subjection to him now, but what we do see is that Jesus, who was made lower than the angels in terms of his humanity and the incarnation, was, is going to be crowned with glory, is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so he ends that introduction on the theme of the grace of God. Now he's going to develop from that, and we're going to tie everything together in just a minute. He's going to develop that in verse 10. He's just laid the groundwork in those first five verses for us to understand that what's happening today is related to what's going to happen in the future. Because of the fact that Jesus is going to have all things 
truly in subjection to him in the future, certain things had to happen now. And so he goes back to explain in verse 10 why things had to happen the way they did, and it relates to preparing a company of believers to rule and reign with him. And so he says in verse 10, For it was fitting for him. And that first word for is the Greek word gar, which always indicates that the writer is now giving a, a, a ground or a reason of explanation for what he just said. And he says, for, for what? What's he explaining? He's explaining the principle of the grace of God. Why was it necessary for God in His grace to provide a Savior? Well, he's going to explain that. For it was fitting, and this is the Greek word prepo, not preppy, but prepo. And it refers to something that is seemly, something that's proper, something that's fitting or becoming, something that's appropriate to the situation or correct for the task at hand. And it's an imperfect uh, tense, and it's used here as a progressive imperfect to make the action vivid or to emphasize it. And so he's saying it was proper, it was the proper thing within the framework of God's plan to do this. So what this tells us is God is not operating in sort of a willy-nilly fashion, but there is a specific plan at work. And that plan is working out certain things in human history in terms of where we're headed eschatologically. So that tells us that the study of prophecy is not something that is just uh, something to, to uh, titillate people's curiosity about what's going to happen in the future or what's happening uh, politically on the scene today, but it's to help us understand where God is taking us and what God is doing with believers in history, and that this ultimately relates to the kingdom. So he said, the writer says, for it was fitting for him. Now, who's the him? Well, this is an interesting phrase. We get, um, uh, it was fitting for him, and that is with reference to God the Father. And then we have two phrases in the Greek, which are the kind of things the Greek scholars love to argue about or discuss. The first phrase is translated, for whom are all things, which is a poor translation. It's the Greek preposition dia plus the uh, accusative case of the relative pronoun, which indicates the idea of because. For it was proper, it was the right thing for him to do, because of whom, that is him, because of whom are all things, and through whom are all things. It's the same preposition again, dia, this time it's with a genitive case. So it indicates two different aspects. And the first one aspect emphasizes because of whom are all things, indicates that God the Father is the ultimate cause of all things. And once again, what doctrine does that take us to? It takes us to the doctrine of creation. Once again, we, we, we've moved here. We're moving here from creation and the beginning of time to God's ultimate resolution of everything at the end of time. For it was fitting for him, because of whom are all things, and by whom are all things. And this by whom indicates that he is the one who is 
is the one who consistently maintains the universe. Now, this is talking about God the Father. Now, we've always also seen that God the Son is involved in maintaining the universe, and we saw that back in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, that... uh, our chapter 1, verse 3, that he is the one who's maintaining the universe. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 also talks about that, that Jesus Christ maintains the universe. But God the Father is involved also. Now the main thought here progresses, for it was the proper thing for him, because of whom are all things and by whom are all things. So that's a parenthetical statement describing God. For it was proper for him in bringing many sons to glory. And glory is future. So we've moved from the past to the future, indicating the fact that God's plan is complete. It covers all of time. It's exhaustive. And the word that's translated bringing many sons to glory is actually the Greek verb ago, which means to lead. He is leading Many sons to glory. The word ago can mean lead or bring or carry or remove, but it has the idea of leading a company forward. It's an uh, aorist participle. It lacks the definite article, which means it's an adverbial participle, and you have to identify the kind of participle. You can't just leave it hanging as an ing word. What in, in bringing many sons to glory? What's the nuance? And the nuance is that it is a purpose. Uh, a, a, a participle of purpose in order to lead many sons of, to glory. So we would translate this, it was the right thing for him, that is, the one by, because of whom all things are in existence and by whom all things are in existence, in order to bring many sons to glory. See, he's operating today with the end in mind. In order to bring many sons to glory. And, and the word sons refers to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ because at the instant of salvation, we're adopted into the royal family of God. So we become adopted sons. It's a technical term. It doesn't have to do with whether you're male or female. It has to do with the legal status that we have as heirs of God in the royal family. So it was, it was a proper thing for him in order to bring many sons to glory the, with, the, with the end in mind to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, this brings up a very important point to understand. That the goal was, in order to bring us to glory, he had to make the captain of our salvation. And that's a phrase that refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a a term, let me skip ahead here, it's the term archagon, which means a leader, a champion, a founder, or pioneer. King James translated it, the author, in Hebrews 12, too, the author and finisher of our faith, has the idea of being a pioneer, someone who goes there first, someone who sets a precedent. So in order to bring many sons to glory, it was necessary to make the captain, the pioneer, and that's how it should be understood, because what Jesus Christ is doing is pioneering the spiritual life. The way Jesus Christ led this, his spiritual life during the time of his incarnation 
was different, had different dynamics from the spiritual life of Israel. But you see, if you don't have an understanding of a distinction between Israel and the church, you're not going to come up with these kinds of distinctions. Jesus Christ is a pioneer. He's doing something different. He sets a precedent in the, in the um, time of, of the incarnation. He sets the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. The precedent for the church age, spiritual life, isn't in the Old Testament. It's not following the Mosaic law. It's not simple morality. It's not just simply doing what the Bible says to do. It is if you properly understand the role of the Holy Spirit. But, but see, when I had the chart up earlier and I was talking about um, replacement theology, all those systems are trying to, to basically pull them, everybody's trying to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps in terms of the spiritual life. And it's only when you're looking at what developed out of dispensational theology through Schofield and Schaefer and others emphasize the fact that it is a supernatural way of life. It is a dis- there is a distinct supernatural emphasis on the spiritual life of the believer in the church age. We can't do it on our own. The spiritual life is impossible. You can't do it apart from supernatural empowerment, which comes from God the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus Christ pioneered that in the first advent. So he is, he is setting the model. He sets the precedent for how we as believers can live the Christian life in the church age. So this is what is part of God's plan. That's why the writer of Hebrews says it was proper and, and and the right thing for him who created everything. Well, we could paraphrase that, because of whom are all things and through whom are all things. Because he's the one who created everything. He is the, God the Father is the grand architect of everything, including our spiritual life. It was the right thing for him to do in order to bring us to glory in the future. In order to bring us to glory in the future, he had to do something first. He had to make the pioneer of our salvation perfect. And this word perfect is, I really wish it hadn't been translated that way because it implies to us the idea of flawlessness. And that's not the idea. Jesus Christ was flawless. He never sinned. But the word is the word teleao in the, in the Greek. And the noun form is, a, there's a noun form, telos, uh, teleos. This whole word group has to do with Completion or maturity. It never has the idea of flawlessness in the New Testament. It means to make something complete or mature. So this tells us something profound. Jesus Christ in his humanity, who is sinless. We know that because when we come to the end of this section in chapter 4, we learn that he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Yet he still had to be matured in his spiritual life. He had to grow spiritually. He had to be made mature. How? Through suffering. Now, let's stop a minute and just think a little bit in terms of application. If the Lord Jesus Christ, who is absolutely perfect, who was without sin had to go through suffering. And the word here is a, the plural word of pathema. 
The singular often refers to the suffering on the cross, whereas the plural uh, often here refers to the adversity he faced in his humanity during the incarnation. If Jesus Christ in his humanity had to go through adversity in order to mature and he was sinless, then the conclusion is why do we think that we're going to get there without going through adversity? See, the purpose in the spiritual life is to learn to be obedient to God in every area. And that's Jesus had to learn obedience. Now, that doesn't mean that you're disobedient in order to learn obedience. But it is a, a process of learning to be obedient. That's the process of sanctification. And the, the key idea here, the key word that helps us understand the whole dynamics of the Christian life is the idea of maturity or completion. We have to reach that level of, of maturity or completion in our understanding of who God is and our understanding of His Word and our application of it in every area of life. So in order to apply it, there have to be uh, various tests. Now let me show you how this word and why this word is so important. Just turn back with me in your Bible to Galatians chapter 3. Now Galatians has two basic sections to, to the epistle. The first two chapters deal with justification, salvation, and the sort of the high point of that argument is, is uh, Galatians 2. Uh, 2.16, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So everything in the first two chapters drives towards understanding justification by faith, that we don't get saved by doing something on our own. It is a work of God. It is by grace through faith, and that we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's the point in the first two chapters. Then the, the point in chapters 3 through 6 has to do with the spiritual life. And in chapter 3, Paul starts off slapping the Galatians upside the head by saying, You foolish Galatians, you morons, literally. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Verse 2, this I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? See, that's the point he's been driving at in the first two chapters. Did you get saved by obeying the law, by being moral, by doing the right thing, by pulling yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps? Or you, did you get saved by the hearing of faith? Well, obviously they're going to say, well, we were saved by the hearing of faith. That's what... Galatians 2.16 is we're justified by faith alone. And then verse 3, he drives a point, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, that literally it's an instrumental dative of pneuma, having begun by means of the Spirit, are you now being, what? Look at that word. Does that seem familiar? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? What they had done is they, they, they've shifted their M.O. so that salvation was by the Spirit, but now they're trying to be made mature by the flesh, by just doing the right thing. Now, 
go back to that chart I had up there on the overhead a minute ago. All those replacement theological systems from Methodism, Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, all of those are following this second. They're doing what the Galatians did. We're going to go back to the law in some way and try to apply the law and try to be moral and do all the, all the moral things and go to church on Sunday and now call that the Sabbath. And I don't know how they ever got the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, but somehow they did. And uh, we're going to do all these, these things to follow the law, and that's going to make us spiritual. But what Paul is saying is if you started by means of the Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit that gave birth to your new spiritual life, then why do you think that that's going to grow by shifting to the, another methodology? It's not. And so he says, having begun by means of the Spirit, are you now, are you now being matured by the flesh? See, when we put this together with with Hebrews 2.10, and we tie it back into what happened in the life of Christ. Jesus Christ wasn't matured in his spiritual life, in his humanity, by following the Mosaic Law. Now, he obeyed the Mosaic Law, but he was indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and it was his dependence upon God the Holy Spirit that's how he advanced to spiritual maturity. So he set a new precedent in the spiritual life. Now, back one, one other thing I want you to notice here in Galatians 3.3. 3. The terminology that you see here. It talks about the spirit. It talks about being made mature. And it talks about the flesh. The flesh is the, the, our own inherent human power. It can mean the sin nature and often does and has that overtone here. But it's, are you doing it without God? Now, there's another verse in Galatians that uses those three key terms. And we don't find it until we get to chapter 5. Everything between Galatians 3.3 3 and Galatians 5.16 is designed to answer the question and to set up the solution in Galatians 5.16. Now you say, well, that seems like he's going a long way around the barn. Well, that's true. See, some questions just can't be answered that quickly or that easily. Sometimes somebody will ask me a question. I'll say, well, first of all, we have to talk about this. No, 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 I just want a quick answer. No, some things don't get you. can't have a quick answer. You've got to lay the foundation. That's why sometimes when you look at lawyers working in a trial, it takes them forever to make a point because they have to go back and lay the foundation and then build everything point by point so that you get to the right conclusion and understand the answer. And that's what, what Paul does here. So he, he makes a diversion in chapters 3, 4, and 5 to go back and to point out what the purpose of the law was and what it wasn't. And the role of Abraham, the promise of God, and uh, the, the Abrahamic covenant, and the liberty that we have in Christ in chapter 5. And then he comes down to verse 16 of chapter 5. And he says, I say then, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not... What do you think that word is for fulfill? That's the word teleao. Now, this is what drives me nuts about translators, is if you're going to take a Greek word and translate it one way in Galatians 3.3... 3, 
Why don't you translate it with the same word in Galatians 5.16 so people can see the connection? It's not walk by means of the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's walk by means of the Spirit and you won't bring to completion, you won't perfect, as it were, you won't bring to completion the lust of the flesh. What are the three key terms that we have in Galatians 5.16? Spirit, completion, and the flesh. Where was the last place we saw those three terms hooked together? Back in Galatians 3.13. You see why there's the connection. You can't see it in the English because they fouled it up and they don't translate it with the same English words consistently. But Galatians 5.16 says that the key to maturity in the Christian life is walking by means of the Spirit, not the flesh. What were the Galatians trying to do? They started by the Spirit, but now they're trying to complete it by the flesh. And in Galatians 5.16, Paul says, No, you're supposed to walk by means of the Spirit, and you won't bring to completion the lust of the flesh, the lust of the sin nature. And so he sets up this juxtaposition between walking by the Spirit and walking by the flesh or the sin nature. And it's clear from the syntax of the Greek here, uh, which doesn't simply say you shall not. It's a, it's a double negative. In English, a double negative is bad grammar. But in Greek, they had a phrase where they used... The Greek has two different words for negation, u and me. And when you join them together with a, with a verb in the subjunctive mood, it has the idea of expressing something that's impossible. You just can't do it. And what Paul is saying here is walk by means of the Spirit and it's impossible to bring to completion the lust of the flesh. Because as long as you're focused on walking by the Spirit, you're not going... To put it in computer terminology, your default position is the sin nature. That's the default position. And so whenever you stop focusing and concentrating on the Holy Spirit, you're going to default to the sin nature. But as long as you're focused on doing what the Holy Spirit says through His Word and being in fellowship, abiding in Christ, walking by means of the Spirit, then you're going to grow and advance, just as Jesus Christ did. Now the difference between our spiritual life and the spiritual life that Jesus Christ had is what? He didn't have to worry about a sin nature. Now that brings us to a foundational element in understanding the whole concept of sanctification. And that is that too often, in, ever since Adam sinned, we think of sanctification in terms of, this, of the sin nature. We think of sanctification in terms of somehow living a morally pure life, not sinning. But you see, Adam still had to be sanctified he, before, he, before he fell. He still had to be sanctified. Jesus Christ, who was totally sinless with no sin nature, still had to be sanctified. So the core meaning of sanctification doesn't have anything to do with sin. It has to do with something that's positive. It's learning to love God fully and obey Him in every dimension of our life and learn to think like God thinks. And that's a learning process. If you, Adam had to learn. That's why God came and walked in the garden with him every day before he fell. He still had to go through that learning process. Jesus Christ had to learn by the things he suffered. And we do too.
And so when we come to Hebrews 10, we're, what we're faced with here in Hebrews 2.10 is that God has a magnificent plan for us. And that is He's preparing us for glory. He's preparing us for eternity. But that preparation is of such a complex nature that in order to give us what we needed, He had to also send His Son, not only in terms of providing salvation at the cross, but in terms of pioneering this this tremendous spiritual life so that He could pioneer that life, we could follow, and He would in turn lead a company to heaven to rule with Him. And this is where we are going to go in verse 11. For both He who sanctifies, it's God the Father, and those who are being sanctified, that's us, are all of one. It's the same process is what He's saying in the beginning of verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he, that is Jesus Christ, is not ashamed to call them brethren. That's a hint that there's two different kinds of shame that can take place at the judgment seat of Christ. Remember in 1 John 2.28, John warned that you don't want to be ashamed at his coming. Well, this hints at the fact that those who advance to spiritual maturity, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Because they have followed in his footsteps. And this is a reference to that group of companions that Jesus Christ is preparing to rule and reign with him. And it's grounded in sanctification. So this opens up for us a whole new understanding Uh, our appreciation for God's plan for the spiritual life and God's plan for for sanctification. And it's based upon the work of God the Holy Spirit. And all of the introduction that I gave where I went through the history and I talked about the different theological systems is I hope to give you an appreciation for the fact that that while what we believe is, is not necessarily popular, and it's certainly being denigrated by a number of people uh, in evangelicalism today because we're those nasty bad boys of dispensationalist. Nevertheless, it is grounded in, in a consistent interpretation of Scripture. And it has a rich heritage. It may not have a heritage that's long. That doesn't matter. Uh, historical length is not a criterion for, for, his, for biblical orthodoxy. But it has a tremendous heritage in godly men that have a tradition grounded in, in a proper understanding of the word from, from Darby through Schofield through, uh, through Chafer. And each one of these men refined the views of the men that preceded them so that we have this, this great understanding of the unique spiritual life that God has given us today. And it gives us great comfort because no matter what we're going through in terms of adversity today, we know that Jesus Christ surmounted every category of adversity and testing during the first advent in order to prepare uh, Him for His work on the cross. And as we go through this, following in His footsteps, we're prepared to rule and reign with Him in the Millennial Kingdom. So that's our introduction to sanctification, and we'll uh, press on through this rest of this chapter next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, to be impressed with the, uh, not only the uh, complexity of your plan, 
but it's simplicity. It just depend upon the Holy Spirit. Walk by means of the Holy Spirit. When we fail to confess our sins and then abide in Christ, walk by means of the Spirit and keep pressing forward. Following in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the pioneer of our salvation. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.